What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. On today's show, I am speaking with Jake Clopton of Clopton Capital, which is a nationwide commercial real estate financing business based out of Chicago in the US. Now, it doesn't matter really where in the world you are based, real estate investment or property investment, whatever you call it, it is all very, very closely aligned with the banking and financing sector. One does not really uh, work without the other, or certainly they would definitely struggle without one or the other. And what you might find interesting about today's conversation is the fact that Jake had absolutely no knowledge or experience of real estate investment of the sector in any shape or form, and really just spotted an opportunity in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis. So it really just proves the point that every crisis can be turned into an opportunity and it's really down to your mindset and how you look at that uh, particular crisis. So without further ado, let me get into my conversation with Jake Clopton. You are listening to Behind the Facade, the number one podcast for investing with a particular focus on the real estate and property investment market. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I'm going to be exploring the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Jake Clopton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Gavin. Appreciate having me, uh, having me on. Uh, not at all, uh, Jake. Tell me this now. So as I mentioned, this podcast is quite an international sort of audience. Can you just tell us where exactly in the world you are as we're having this conversation? Uh, yeah, I, I'm sitting in Chicago, Illinois. Illinois, the Windy City, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Good stuff. And I would have already introduced you um, and uh, some of the stuff you have done at the beginning of the podcast. But just for a little bit of context, I always like to ask our guests, can you just kind of describe what a young Jake uh, Clopton was up to? And uh, and if there was any kind of influences that kind of got you into the career and kicked off your career for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I went to like a Jesuit high school, went to a Jesuit college. Um, I studied economics in school. And then after school, I, I, I had a little bit of a different type of path. I actually didn't go right and get a job. I actually moved to Argentina for a year um, and kind of stayed there. I was always kind of into stocks and stuff. Um, and I, I was like trading stocks and stuff while I was living down there, just kind of for myself. When I, when I was done there, I mean, at, at a certain point, I was like, all right, I got I to gotta figure something out, right? So I actually moved to the U.S. and then I did accounting for a resort in Florida for a year. And then moved to Chicago and traded futures. And then 2009-ish era, started my company now. Okay. And so you, in terms of the 2008 crisis that, that took place, uh, did that have a dramatic impact on your, you know, what you were doing at the time? Well, I was trading interest rates and interest rates went to zero. And I really needed like volatility to make right. money, right? To make trades. So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a big impact, right? Uh, I really had to just... I was like, well, this is over, basically. So I had to right, figure okay. out something else to do. Um, and I was looking around and, you know, there was always this concept that there's going to be all this commercial debt that was going to be coming due. And also that like finding business capital and finding loans is really difficult. 
So that was my idea, right? Somehow to insert myself, like I, I didn't have $100 million to lend out, right? So I had to find some way to insert myself kind of into the transaction and make the transaction cost. That, that was my general idea, basically just to be an intermediary, right? Between people that are looking for capital and people that had it to lend out, so. And that's actually, it's a good thing because everybody that I speak to that is kind of looking for advice, almost always they're wondering, you know, well, how can I find investors? And, and rather than going out and trying to meet the investor, it's a lot easier to meet the intermediary who knows right. the investor and can kind of uh, get in front of them that way. Right. And as an intermediary, right, you, well, if you go direct to investors, that's one investor, right? But in an yeah. intermediary, is really like a leveraged position that may have a hundred different investors. Right. So yeah. it, it's a, you get to leverage your access that way. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, was it on the cards always for you to start your own business? Um, I, I don't like wearing ties. So, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. You know, I was always kind of driven in that direction. And I, I think it's just for my personality, it's just a much better fit. So. Right. OK. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, prior to, you know, there must have been a bit of a transition for you to go from trading, uh, you know, interest rates and things like that to, to running your own business. Like what was the first, you know, what was the big challenges that you had to overcome in that initial step? Um, well, you know, when I traded, I actually worked from 1am to 4pm every day, which oh, is wow. really a long day. Right. Um, and so yeah, as far as like work hours, putting that in, like, no, I was probably actually, you know, working less, you know, working for myself. Um, so like the whole worth ethic aspect was like, you know, already kind of there. Um, the biggest difference for me was actually talking directly to people versus just like trading on a screen, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're trading, it's just you and a computer and that's pretty much it. But then, you know, when you, when you go to be an entrepreneur, it's, you know, I really had to develop the whole like, you know, networking aspect of it, just making phone calls, making relationships, stuff like that. Those soft skills of building a rapport and stuff like that. Right, right, exactly. And, and was that difficult, that transition? Um, not, not really. I mean, I think it really just comes down to like desire and motivation to start doing it. And I really just started making phone calls. You know, I mean, I think even people that have sort of like anxiety to make phone calls, like once you just start doing it and you've done something a hundred times, that, that kind of burns off, right? And then you, right. you really get a lot more comfortable with it. I get you. Okay. And I mean, they say entrepreneurship is like pushing an aircraft off a cliff and then learning to fly on, on the way down. I mean, is that what it was like in those initial kind of, uh, you know, you, you, you've given up trading, so your income has stopped there and you obviously have to kind of figure out how you're going to generate something on the other side. I mean, what was that period of time like? Right. I mean, you know, you hear stories about these people that start businesses and it's just like a meteoric rise, right? But I, I just don't really think it happens like that. I think what you, you hear about that when it's happening, but what you don't see is the whole buildup to that, right? I mean, realistically, when I started this business, it was, a, it was a long ride. I mean, it was several years before I really figured it out, really started making money. So it, I just think you, you need that, you know, concept of grit and sticking with it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's usually right about when you feel like you're a failure that if you push through, it starts working. You know what yeah. I mean? So it was really, you know, it's a whole learning curve and like being able to accept like, you you know, you fail at something or, you know, it doesn't work. You learn from it, you move on say, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. Right. And you kind of pivot into another direction and keep going until you've like figured out the, like the correct path and how to do things. That's interesting. Yeah. Actually, it's a good um, point there because there's a thing called survivorship bias. 
And it's that whole thing where you hear these stories of people who had the meteoric rise. The reason you hear those stories is because they survived long enough to be able to tell these great stories. Right. Whereas right. the hundred other guys or the 99 other guys that kind of flamed out and didn't go anywhere. They're not out there telling, sharing their story and stuff. So you'll only right. ever hear the right. exactly. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You think everybody that starts their own business is all of a sudden going to be a billionaire or something like that. But you don't hear about the other guy, the business that failed or like the guy that took 10 years and just kind of had a slow ramp up and ground it out. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And so, I mean, in terms of you going out and starting this, I mean, did you have a kind of unique selling proposition for your clients or, I mean, how did you go about sort of the pivot from doing stuff in front of a computer screen to suddenly kind of calling people up? and Well, asking? yeah, I mean, it, I was kind of in a unique position, right? Because at, at the time it was a financial crisis. And when things, when there's a crisis, there's opportunity, right? And just like the big gap was people couldn't find money. So really at the time, if you were telling people like, hey, I, I can get loans, I have, you know, and I have access to capital, people just kind of came to you. You know what I mean? So right. I, I think it was, you know, the right time and the right opportunity to be able to do that. I mean, you can still get, there's, there's no reason why you can't get into this business now. But, you know, it was one of those periods of time where it was just a huge opportunity to kind of insert yourself and, and maybe move a little bit faster than you would have. And there's less competition and all these types of things. And during that crisis, um, I mean, I know because I went through it and, and I had a pretty torrid time. I, I was kind of pretty long on real estate. And so I actually had quite a lot of debt. And so I, I spent most of my time firefighting during that period. Um, were there many people that had like a lot of cash sitting around, like ready to invest in the deals that you were bringing them? Um. So, you know, at, at the time, you know, there there was kind of like a liquidity freeze, right? I mean, and, th and that's really where it came from is people had a lot of debt, a lot of assets. But, you know, for the most part, I think a lot of people were very unprepared for the financial crisis. Um, yeah. You know, in, in what happened just recently, right in 2020, that the general theme was there's lots of liquidity out there to really go and, and pick up deals and chase deals right away. Right. I mean, because everybody kind of learned from back in 2009 that you know, when a crisis happens, you know, there's lots of opportunities. So people, there was like equity funds and there was people waiting in the rafters and trying to, try to pick up deals. But yeah, I mean, it, it was difficult uh, to do deals back then, right? I mean, lenders, you know, were, and the, and the biggest problem and the biggest, you know, back then, the biggest difference between 2009 and 2020 was that lenders were not capitalized, right? Mm -hmm. So the lenders really, you know, their balance sheets were stuck and they had difficulty lending out money. Whereas in 2020, it was not a, a lender issue, right? The capital markets, the lenders were, you know, were, were, you know, healthy, the lenders were well capitalized. So, you know, that that's why, you know, I think the 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 hangover from 2009 lasted so much longer versus 2020. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And obviously, now the, you know, the, the that stimulus and all of that liquidity that was kind of thrown into the market, it has had an impact on inflation. And we're obviously reading and hearing a lot about inflation fears and all that. How are you seeing, I mean, given your past in trading interest rates and stuff uh, and the volatility you used to look for, I mean, I guess there's a, a fair bit of that out there now. Is it starting to change, do you think? Um, yeah. I mean, look, so if you look at like the expansion of money supply, right, I mean, we we expanded M2 money supply in about a two month period, the same amount that back in 2009, I think took five years. Wow. So it, the, you know, the money supply expansion was just astronomical. 
And, uh, you know, and that that really filtered quickly kind of into the system. But what they did differently this time, too, was direct payments to, you know, consumers and stuff like that. So it was really, you know, from the top and the bottom, right? I mean, there was just so much cash coming into the system. That's why you saw these crazy things like retail stock traders, you know, like, you know, going through Robinhood and buying options and GameStop exploding and all this stuff, right? There was just so much liquidity out there, you know? Um, So... Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, and as far as inflation goes, you know, like inflation is is good and bad, right? I mean, I, I think part of the the whole idea with inflation today, and maybe not what they're not saying, is that like we're trying to inflate some of the debt away, yeah. so that that like you know the the interest payments, you know, everybody's levered up, right? When they do QE, everybody levers up their lower interest rate debt, and so trying to like you know lessen the burden and some of that debt that gets accumulated through you know through times when. You know, the government's out there buying up all the bonds and, all, all, you know, all the assets and, and just inflating asset prices. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, you know, I think inflation will be a positive factor. Um, but, you know, and there's there's definitely areas that are better prepared for it, like like real estate in general kind of, you know, is typically a hedge for inflation, especially yeah. some sectors of it. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, paying attention and knowing how to position yourself. What you know, it is definitely uh, going to be an advantage today. So. Yeah, yeah. The only concern, I guess, is that if they start to shift the the rates upwards, um, that there'll be people out there that could get just caught out by the fact that the rates moved faster than they expected. Right, right, and and that kind of goes along with the whole levering up with cheap debt thing, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what happened in two thousand nine, right? And all these consumers had levered up all these houses with cheap loans, and then. It, you know, it, it's with uh, these adjustable rate mortgages and when those rates popped, right? I mean, the debt service crushed them. And, it, in, in, you know, it always happens, right? There will be people that are not positioned well and yeah. they'll they'll be paying when you raise interest rates. But, I mean, generally speaking, you know, as, as long as asset prices and incomes are rising with interest rates, you know, I, I, the, gen- the economy, you know, will be fine. Yeah. Um, Jake, in terms of, uh, you were mentioned that it took you a couple of years to figure things out when you started your business. I mean, at what point, was there a particular moment where suddenly maybe you landed a big client or you did a big deal or something happened that made you kind of go, oh, wait, hold on a sec. I figured this out. I think I know how how to make this work now. Was there a moment? You know, in retrospect, there, there probably was. I think when you're in that moment, it's it's hard to recognize it. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, in my business, uh, the you know the revenue you get is much more choppy, right? So it's like, you know, you you work, you know, you know how it is in real estate. You work on something for a long time, and then it finally closes, and then it happens, right? But it's it's the whole like, you know, the the whole work going up to that closing that people don't really see. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, realistically for us, it was just when we, you know, had figured out what we wanted to do, what we wanted to focus on and then started closing those deals. And that was really probably, you know, two years in, um, you know, when, you know, when, when the P and L kind of flipped to being positive versus, you know, just kind of chugging along there, um, and not really, you know, making a lot of profit. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably say that like the two year mark when, you know, I was able you know, when I really recognize that, like, hey, I mean, this is something that is working well, and not only will, you know, support my life, right, but also generate a large return, you know, in in other ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you have like mentors or anyone kind of to help you kind of guide you along in this path? No. Well, okay. 
Not a single one. Okay, that's uh, so you've learned the hard way, in other words. Uh, yes, yes. It was, you know, mistakes were my mentors, right? So I've got, and, and that's what I've never been afraid to do. Yeah. Screw up, right? Go in, screw up as much as you can and, and learn from it, right? And it's like, hey, if there's a hundred ways to do something, if I screw up 99 times, I'm going to figure out that one way to do it eventually. So, yeah, yeah. It's a good way to look at it. And, and tell me, I mean, habits and behaviors are, are critically important. I mean, is there any particular sort of habit that you've developed that you think has been critical to the success you've enjoyed? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really think it's, it's the concept of just grit and staying with it. I think a lot of people, you know, like if, if, no, I don't think, I, I don't think every single person out there wants to be an entrepreneur. Right. And, you know, the, but the people that do the ones that I kind of see that, you know, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere or, you know, it, it maybe it just doesn't work out for them. It's really just because, you know, I wouldn't say it's intelligence. Right. I mean, I don't think, you know, owning and operating your own business is rocket science, right? It's, it's really about just staying with it and then being willing to make the mistakes and learn from mistakes, you know? Because like, like I said, I feel like 90% of people probably bow out right before they're about to start, you know, doing well, right? Because I mean, that what, what typically happens right before then is, you know, you're making the most mistakes, you know, and, and eventually, it, you know, the, the curve kind of goes upward for you from there because you've learned the right things to do. So, I mean, I just think, I think it's grit sticking with it. And, you know, and I'd say the other side of that is, you know, obviously you got to live, right? So properly managing your monetary risk, right? Like, you know, if you're going to start your own business, probably don't hold all of your savings in Bitcoins. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? This is risk on risk. So, yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. I just was speaking about Bitcoin on uh, this morning's podcast my podcast goes out every monday and i was talking about the differences between st the stock market crypto market and real estate and uh, i'm curious what what your uh, view is on those three um i i spent an hour talking about it yesterday yesterday so i'm just curious i mean what is your perspective on those three good question okay so i like real estate right i mean i can go there i can knock on the walls it's physical you know it, it's it's a real asset. It's what I know, you know what I mean? And like, it's all I do all day long. So I, and I like to invest in things that I, I know, right? I mean, I, I don't want to run every race at the track meet. I want to do one of them really well and stick with that. I'm the world's worst stock picker. So <laughs> I'm just going to completely stay away from that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I have like a, a guy that does that for me. You know what I mean? I've just learned to stay out of there, man. It's not my, you know, it's not for me. I mean, as far as cryptocurrencies and bitcoins i I've, I've been learning about them and reading about them and for years now since you know two years whatever i i, I don't understand a practical reason for them you know i mean I, I don't understand why they need to change price it doesn't it doesn't really make like i understand you know you need this like value to convince people to do mining but i understand why it actually has to change price and then also I, I put this on LinkedIn. I have a big 30,000 people LinkedIn following. And I put this out there several times. Like, hey, can somebody tell me, have you ever bought something in Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever? I don't care. You know, yeah. what, what was it and why, why did you buy it, right? Um, and I've yet to have a single person. It's always like, oh, I knew a guy that, you know, that knew a guy that bought something. You know, I've yet to have yeah. a single person actually say like they bought something. Um, and, and then the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, I've, I've looked into kind of like, okay, well, 
there's all this, you hear about all this transaction volume that's happening in cryptocurrencies. Like, ah, it's $20 billion worth transactions a day. Um, but there's, I, I believe it's called like blockanalysis.com or something. You can go in there and you can see that only 1% of all transactions was actually a purchase. Everything else is just a trade. Yeah. So I, I don't know, man. I, I think blockchain is just a more secure way of doing things, but I don't know about the whole cryptocurrency thing. So well, it's, I'll, it's, I'll think, I'll think governments have, you know, really want to control their money supply. So I think that that's coming eventually. So. I, I think I think you're absolutely right. By the way, uh, it's uh, I actually got uh, told about Bitcoin. I have a friend who was into all of this kind of stuff way back, and so back in 2012 or 2013 or something, I I found out about Bitcoin, and he he suggested that I should go and buy some, and it was ninety three dollars per Bitcoin, and oh. and and it, the the annoying thing is I didn't do anything because. A couple of days later, when I started trying to buy it, it had jumped to 140. And I kind of thought, whoa, it's like, you know, gone up 50%. That's not the time to buy just after it's popped 50%. So I kind of just decided not to. And of course, it went off on its on its train. But the thing is, is like, you can kind of look back and say, God, why didn't I do it? But the reality is, is as soon as that thing popped 200% or something like that, you probably would have exited thinking that you're a genius. And here we are now, like who holds on to something until it goes up, you know, 12,000% or whatever. Like most people would exit long before it ever achieved that kind of a return. Right. And it does seem a little bit like a game of musical chairs, right? I mean, it seems like it exists to exist. You, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and, and like, I mean, it, it's really like a trading, you know, type of thing, it feels like. And then, you know, that, that's why, you know, when, when it drops, I feel like there's just huge volatility because people are like, all right, this is it. This is the this is the Bitcoin winner. I'm out, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. We'll see. But. Well, that's the thing that I, it's funny. The, the difference between, say, stocks and Bitcoin, uh, like you say, uh, and just that you're the worst stock picker. I, I feel like I'm in that same boat as well. <laughs> it's the volatility uh, is the biggest problem. And it's the emotional reaction that you have to that volatility. So if you go and put an investment into those things and then it drops 50% overnight. You feel like, oh my God, I've made this terrible you know, error and I should sell and I should never have gotten into the damn thing. Whereas with real estate, it's this nice and steady. Now, obviously 2008 aside, because you know I watched my portfolio fall by 60%, but most of the time it's much, much slower. You're not talking about every couple of hours, these huge fluctuations and swings. Yeah, you, you don't get a mark to market every second. Right? Yeah. Exactly, and, and you know, in real estate, you know, and, and I feel like some people don't feel this. I mean, real estate, no matter what you own, it's a business, right? You can go in, you can make changes, you can do things, you can market it more. I, you know, and there's there's something you can do about it, versus like you know the the other things we're talking about, stocks, Bitcoin, also. It that's that's not really a business unless you're, you're actively trading it every second or something. Then, then sure, yeah. Like what I used to do when I traded futures. I mean, I was in those trades for maybe, I don't know. I would say on average, less than a minute. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow, and, yeah. and so like, you know, and people even ask me now about like, oh, well, where, where interest rates going? I don't know. I can tell you where they go in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're going to be higher or lower than they are now. You know what I mean? So the, the long-term predictability of stuff like that is difficult. But. Yeah. Yeah. And do you suffer from FOMO, the fear of missing out? Or have you capped that? <laughs> um, I, I, I have no fear of missing out. Now, like I said, you know, like, and, and, and that's why I've just learned to stick with what I'm doing now, you know, because I, I have friends that like, you know, are, are, oh, man, you should buy some some Dogecoin and this and that. Like, eh, no, 
If you yeah. don't want me to, it's gonna, it's gonna get cut in half as soon as I buy it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tell me this uh, about the the clients that you've managed to attract over the years. Do any? I mean, you know, we all have you know either clients or people that we work with that are doing something right that they're particularly successful at what they do or whatever. Is there any that's sort of traits? of those type of clients that you have that kind of stand out as what it is that they do right that has kind of led to their success? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, the clients that I have, you know, operate real estate as a business, right? And, and a lot of the guys that, you know, we we deal with are, you know, syndicators and equity raisers, right? Um, and I, I think the guys, and I'll just talk about, you know, the whole equity raising thing specifically, you know, I, I think the guys that, you know, are successful in, in raising, you know, investor equity from individuals and, and stuff like that, you know, have really learned that real estate is a networking business as much as it is an asset management business, right? Um, and, and really, you know, focusing on, you know, building good relationships and, and how to, to network that investor base. You know, the, the guys that, you know, I've, I've seen that eventually end up, you know, expanding really well, right? Have, have really got that concept down. Um, there, there's other syndicators we deal with that kind of like, it kind of seems like they, you have a small little group of people and they just keep going back to them. And they're like, well, my investors are tapped out, so we can't go buy more asset, you know? And, and it doesn't seem to be a big push to continuously network and, and you know, and market themselves as a brand versus just kind of dealing with the same guys over and over. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as like the, the guys that I've seen that ex have expanded, right? Like AUM, like substantially that I've watched over the years and dealt with, I mean, the, the whole, you know, concept of, you know, real estate as a relationship and a networking business, as much as just managing the assets. I mean, that, that that's probably one of the key points that I've seen those guys been able to do. Manage the assets and crunch the debt. That's what they right. say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is there any, I mean, obviously COVID had a, a big impact on certain sectors of the real estate market. I mean, the, certainly the office sector here that I look after. And, um, but in particular, I'm thinking about hospitality and stuff. Do you have any clients that were in that sector that have had to kind of pivot dramatically? Yes. So actually we do a lot of hospitality. Right. Um, COVID was, was interesting because the way that it impacted you know, every asset was actually kind of a, a little different, right? I mean, it depended on where you were in and what it was and what kind of demand generators had for the asset, right? So for instance, in, and this is this is not what you would, would have thought, right? Depending on his assets. If, if the, I had a client that owned a hotel, and, you know, near Times Square in New York City, that, that thing lost all its revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no way around it. They shut everything down. There was no travel. There's nothing, right? So that lost almost everything. You know, or in, I also have uh, clients that had like, you know, hotels that were near the beach in Florida. Those guys saw record revenues, right? Of course, so yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of the impact on different assets vary very much so depending on like what the local government was doing, what type of restrictions they had in place, right? I mean, I mean, I remember going down to Florida during kind of like, I think it was like August 2020. It, it didn't exist. Right. I mean, nobody had ever heard of COVID either. And when I come back to Chicago, you know, it's like, you know, oh my God, I got to get my face mask on and it, right? Um, and, 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 you know, and people were, people were doing different things, right? There, as far as like, you know, the, the demand generator of business travel, I mean, that, that was gone. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's still, you know, you know, close to where it was before. 
Um, but, you know, leisure travel and destination places, I mean, those are still seeing, you know, high, very high, like higher than 2019 revenues, right? Um, so, you know, a lot of it was just what was your business makeup, you know, as far as demand generators and, and, and where is it located? Like what kind of restrictions are set in place? I mean, for instance, it's, it's still like that today, right? Like if, if you looked at the difference between, let's say, you know, a bar that's in downtown Chicago in Cook County, you know, you, if you walk into that place, you have to show your vaccine card or they don't let you in. Yeah. Right. But if you go outside of Cook County, you know, where I am, nobody cares. That doesn't, that doesn't exist. So, I mean, still the, the local government rules, I think are a, a major like driving force and how well these, you know, the hospitality businesses are doing and where it's located. Yeah. Um, and, and then like what type of people were going there, like business versus leisure. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a conversation not so long ago with a, a chap who has a, serviced accommodation business so he did a lot of airbnb type thing where you'd you know you'd rent it out on a daily basis or kind of you'd get a couple of days a week of people coming in and using it and obviously covid massively impacted his business and a lot of people in that same sector started selling their assets and all this and what he actually did is he pivoted instead of looking for the leisure sort of uh, visitor and the business visitor that he had previously been serving he started working um, with the, the the national health service and things like that and there was doctors and nurses and all these people that because of their exposure to the virus they couldn't go home to their own homes where their families were they had to isolate and so he actually ended up pivoting into this and growing his business by about 400% during the COVID lockdown. So it's very interesting how just a different mindset can actually really serve you. Right. And, and that's a great example of real estate being a business, right? Versus just an asset. I mean, yeah. you, you, you can do something about it. You can pivot the right thing. And we, we did some similar stuff, right? I mean, in 2020, you know, and what I, what I like to do is, you know, in my business is, is follow like what's going on in the macro trends, right? And kind of like lean into those. And what was, you know, really big in 2020, what, you know, and what was expanding was home builder, you know, type of deals, home building projects, home builder financing. So and we really hadn't done like maybe more than one or two of these in the past, but, you know, that's what was working, right? So we pivoted heavily into home builder financing, you know, when we were able to do a bunch of those deals. So 2020 actually ended up being a pretty good year um, versus if we had just been trying to do, you know, acquisitions or fixed rate mortgages or stuff like that right i mean it would have been would have been pretty tough so. yeah yeah I, I guess that's what it's all about it's really about spotting the opportunities and just moving swiftly and um and being kind of nimble on your feet right 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 absolutely yeah i mean it, i think it's the guys that um you know i mean not everybody has the ability to do that right but you know it, it's people that kind of stick with the same thing no matter what's going on around them and just put those blinders on it's like all right well this is what i do and i'm never going to change this you know you, you know yeah, that's not going to work forever right yeah. i mean you, you've, you've got to be paying attention to what's going on around you to be able to pivot yeah yeah and you mentioned micro trends and stuff uh that's an area that i'm always interested in uh and one of the areas that I'm seeing an awful lot of investor attention these days is ESG and, uh, and this whole thing around the green and environmental uh, standards and energy protect, you know, for the buildings. Is this something that you're seeing? Um, is this sort of creeping into more and more of the conversations you're having? For, for the most part, the environmental stuff that I see you know, manifest itself in, let's say, like financing programs or, you know, like incentives, stuff like right. that. 
you know, for instance, um, you know, there's, you know, you get like a little bit more SBA debt around here if you do a green SBA, right? Yeah. You know, you have some sort of green aspect to it. There's also something in the U.S. called PACE, um, which finances a whole lot of like, you know, energy efficiency stuff for buildings, you know, and, and you know, the, the stuff that I see personally around the country kind of always revolves around some sort of like, you know, government backed or government funded incentive. And I, I feel like that's the easiest way that it makes itself into real estate. You know, as, as I told you, I own a couple of buildings, right? Yes. And, yeah. you know, the way that I've been able to take advantage of, you know, energy efficiencies and let's say like utility efficiency, stuff like that is, um, you know, uh, one of the buildings I bought was was pretty old. And he, just here's, here's a good example. You know, the, they had these like, they were like Sloan valve toilets in them, where it's basically, it was like a prison toilet, you know, like each yeah. wash was like five gallons, right? Um, and the water bills were astronomical. So we, I was actually able to find some, you know, incentive programs through, you know, the utilities and like the local government that they went in and replaced them all for free. Wow. Right. And, yeah. you know, cut our water bill into like a third of what it was. Um, we also, there's also an energy incentive programs, you know, around here. I'm sure there are other places as well. There always are, right. Where they went in and they, they replaced our boilers and put in insulation and all this stuff. And, and it really was at almost no cost to us. Um, so that, I mean, I think that, you know, if, if, if there, if there is some sort of like energy inefficiency, you know, in real estate assets, you know, and people are looking to lower the utilities, well, you know, from, from my experience, what I learned, there's almost always some sort of local government incentive or, you know, cost saving program to be able to do that. Yeah. And it's just, it's just an unlimited upside for you. Right. Versus That's it. I mean, I it, what's really interesting is they brought in um, here in, in Ireland where where I am, uh, they brought in this uh, LED lighting and it was, you know, I'm talking about maybe, I suppose, maybe 15 years ago, they sort of said that all new bulbs that were being put into your lights needed to be LED. And there was a, these were very expensive bulbs, though, you know, a lot of people were, whoa, I don't have to pay, you know, so much for all of this. But what was really interesting is I went through this exercise. There was people coming and knocking on the door and sort of saying, we'll put in all of these bulbs at our expense and we will share the, the savings with you over, say, a five-year amortization period. And I was kind of oh, like, okay. yeah, and this was what they offered. And I, like three or four different companies came to me with the same type of offer. And I remember thinking to myself, if everyone is doing this, then I'm sure there's something to it. So I decided to go and actually explore, you know, the actual technical, you know, what is the cost of each bulb? What's the cost of this? What's the cost of that? And I went and I actually did this myself. And I put in, and I think the total cost maybe was, you know, 25,000 or something like that to replace all the bulbs. And the entire investment was repaid within eight months. Yeah. And if I had, you know, gone off and not researched this and said, oh, great, yeah, put in all these free light bulbs. I would have spent five years giving these guys half of that saving. And, uh, and, in, and instead, my entire investment was completely funded in eight months. So it just shows you how these little incentives, sometimes they kind of, they're an opportunity in themselves. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as far like if you're, I mean, if you're buying an old building at this point, I mean, it's, it's just going to be incredibly inefficient. Yeah. Right. Versus like having built something new. So, I mean, you know, if, if anybody's investing anything that's, you know, more at this point, more than 20 years old, there is a way to figure out, you know, how to make it more efficient and, and save a ton of money, you know, on the expenses. I mean, I mean, for instance, you could almost buy, you know, one of these old like 
hundred year old buildings, go in and do that and then sell it for probably a decent cap rate arbitrage, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. Just by saving all the expenses. Well, nowadays, certainly in this country, if if you can go and buy a building that's in a certain condition and just increase its energy rating. Now here in Ireland, we have a thing called the BER, which is the building energy rating. And it's a certificate certificate that you get and it gives you, you know, A, B, C, or D as a kind of a rating. And the worst buildings, like a hundred year old building would be like a G. And um, if you can get your building up to like an A level or something like that, that is going to make it an investment grade building. Whereas if it's a C or something like that, there's an awful lot of investors that just won't touch it because they, you know, certain tenants will no longer rent a building that is a C rating. They'll only look for buildings that are A rating because if they've got corporate social responsibility and all of these kind of different policies in their corporate governance. And so this is something that I've noticed quite a lot lately. So that is, like you say, cap rate arbitrage there. You could immediately start looking at that kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have that type of rate. We have, I mean, we have lead, sort of, you know, certain ratings for buildings, but I, like a, a rating system like that, you know, that would restrict, you know, your, your tenancy base. I haven't seen, I'm sure it's coming, but I haven't seen that come, you know, happen here yet. I heard that New York is certainly looking at this um, and they were, they were talking about increasing the cost uh, for, I think maybe carbon emissions or something like that on the buildings. And it's going to have this like huge impact on the cost of the big, you know, energy emitting buildings, the big skyscrapers are going to cost sure. an awful lot. And it like billions of, of cost to the landlords, the big, you know, sort of institutional landlords. Um, Jake, what, what about, I mean, in terms of the, the, the fact that you're in the kind of the financing space and stuff, is there any fintech or sort of prop tech startups or businesses that are kind of real game changers in your space or that have really kind of helped you um, with what you do compared to when you started out? Yeah, I mean, technology, right. And, it, you know, as far as like financing, it is always a great, great tool, right? Um but you know, like I do in, in commercial real estate, you can have a small group of people that does a lot of business. And I mean, and there's always, I think, going to be a relationship aspect to it. And every piece of commercial real estate is, is different, right? So for instance, you know, in residential, you know, I, I think Quicken Loans works really well, right? I mean, it's like a box, you know, the houses aren't all that different, right? I mean, you get a credit score, you're in a credit score, you know, it's, it's not that different. It's very boxy, right? And there are certain types of financing in commercial real estate to a degree that that kind of fit into that. And like, you know, surprise, surprise, it's it's mainly like Fannie and Freddie, you know, multifamily loans, which, you know, Fannie and Freddie also do all the residential loans, right? So they try to make that as, you know, close as possible to that. Um, but but as far as far as like fintech goes, like I, I have yet to see some sort of platform that is just kind of like a quick and look, right? Where it's just, you know, an owner of a building goes into a website, plugs in some stuff, gets a loan. Yeah. There's just so much more to it. And there's so many variables and all this stuff that, that comes along with it, that I, I think that that sort of, sort of concept, I'm just not really sure is ever really going to come to fruition. Um, and there's also the relationship, but there's the relationship with the client as well, that a lot of these lenders and institutions they right. don't want to lose that right yeah exactly right right i mean it's very much a relationship business um you know and i've been wondering myself you know as as i start to see investors and sponsors getting younger and younger and then like you know them maybe being more open to the adaptability of just using something like that 
Um, candidly, I haven't really seen that. They still want somebody working with them. Uh, so a lot of the fintech that you know I've, I've seen be be really really helpful is kind of like more in like the support category. You know, maybe like underwriting templates or you know certainly you know like like patching through large data sets, right? So some of the some of the guys that you know some, have really used it well to their advantage. Some of these sponsors I've seen use you know large data sets and as much technology as they can to evaluate trends and then like make help that help them make the decision of like where to invest in and stuff like that, right? So it's really more of a support and analysis role than yeah. really a decision making role, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah. So I, I think I think that's where it's going to have its most value in the commercial real estate space. And that's that's where it's really, you know, helping and making the biggest input. So. Yeah, it's interesting. One of our one of our occupiers here in the business park is uh, it's a big, you know, U.S. multinational and they, they they're in the technology space. But they did a very, very comprehensive fit out uh, like a retrofit of their building and they put in these brand new lights that all have um sensors in them and everything and they can tell if anybody is underneath the light they can they can sense the air they can they can tell whether there's any there's so much co2 in the air all of this it's incredible technology and they were saying that they've already saved something like eighty thousand dollars a year in uh, in maintenance costs just by oh, putting in these yeah because they're able to see that this 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 room is not getting used for six hours of the day why are the lights on you know they should just be off powered off all the time so it's interesting and i and so it's, it's kind of like what you're saying it is the data and the kind of how I, the only problem is there's so much data coming from these sensors is that i think you need artificial intelligence to actually help you kind of use it and and interpret right. what it means you know yeah yeah i mean i i Again, the support role, right? I mean, and that—that's where I think it's—it's it's going to have the biggest impact. And and maybe at the end of the day, that acts as you know one or two jobs that are in kind of in the administration side of things. But I really think it's just—it's—it's going to let let—it's going to let less people leverage their time to do more ultimately. Yeah, that's true. That's what it's all down to. Yeah, um, you mentioned macro trends. Like, is there any other trends that you're watching that you're particularly kind of excited about or or interested in following? Um. I mean, as far as like the commercial real estate space, I think the biggest, you know, the, the biggest thing that's going on right now that I think most people aren't used to and most investors aren't used to today is really the inflation aspect that you brought up before. Um, you know, all through 2009 to 2000, right? Like 22, right? I mean, people weren't dealing with inflation. In fact, they're dealing with deflation, yeah. right? For a lot of it. Um, and, and then we're like really understanding like, how inflation is going to affect their assets, you know, independently. Like, like, do I want to lock up my industrial building on a 10-year lease? I, I don't know. Maybe I don't, right? Maybe long-term leases are a liability ultimately. Yeah. Because, you know, you're going to get that erosion for 4% inflation. Um, and, and like one of the most interesting things right now, and, and I, was, uh, I was, you know, kind of doing some commentary for an article about this, is how hospitality in an inflationary environment is one of the best places to be. Right? Yeah, because you can change your rates. room rates yeah, yeah every second. And, you know, I, I think, you know, once it, people will re re slowly, right, recognize that over time. And I think there'll be a lot more kind of equity dollars that flows in that space because if we continue inflation, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, like really understanding how that's going to affect you, right? I mean, for instance, do you really want to get into a Walgreens that's in a, a single net, tri single tenant, triple net Walgreens investment property? that's being sold at a four cap that has a 20 year lease on it 
that you know has two percent escalations every year yeah probably not you're gonna lose money eventually right that's yeah gonna yeah so, as opposed I, mean, you know, I, I think that's going to change so. yeah as opposed to having some sort of a tenant like a, a, a we work or co-working or something like that where people are paying a desk fee or whatever it is um you know obviously a desk fee can be adjusted on a weekly basis in the same way as room rates in a hotel or something sure yeah, yeah. no right right same concept it's like you know, in I, I believe from the 2009 to 20 era, long-term leases were a huge asset, but I think they're going to start to maybe push more towards, you know, liability, right? It, and, you know, unless there's some sort of, right, inflation adjustment. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, we have in, in the Irish market here and the UK market would be the same. We have you know, five yearly uh, rent reviews and uh, and then obviously you look around and whatever the most recent rent review of a similar type is what the the market kind of ratchets up to and um, now it used to be upward only rent reviews so you could never go down once you went up but nowadays right, they have right. upward and downward but uh, i think now and in this inflationary time we're not so worried about the downward movements any longer right i think we'll see more of them like you know tied to like a CPI type of type of metric or something like that. And yeah. just 2% escalations every year, you know, it, yeah. it, it probably is going to make more sense for landlords in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just conscious of the time, uh, Jake. I just, there's a couple of final questions that I'd like to put you. And uh, one of them is that I ask my every guest is, you know, knowing now what you know, uh, if you were to look back on your career and sort of have an opportunity to speak to your younger self in that uh, just before you kind of started in your career, was there is there any particular advice that you'd give yourself knowing now what you know? It's, it's a difficult question, right? Because, you know, the, that path led me to here. You know, I, I guess I, I would I would say maybe figure out exactly what you want to focus on a little faster. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I, I think at the time I was, you know, and, and it, it, was, it was an asset, right? I was extremely open to, you know, lots of different, you know, areas that the business could have gone, right? I mean, like at one point we were financing like semi trucks and stuff like that. Wow. Um, but, you know, it, I mean, it's hard to say, like if I, you know, focused on the wrong thing, right? Or, you know, this and that. So, I mean, the, the openness, you know, I think definitely helped, but, you know, probably just, uh, I, don't, I don't know relax and stick with it easier, you know, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you kind of have that, like, you know, mentality that you have to, you know, work your ass off because, every, <laughs> you know, you're just afraid of everything's going to blow up in your face at all times. Um, so, you know, probably just to relax more and not, uh, not worry too much. It's going to, it's going to work out eventually. Right. We're, yeah. Just to reassure yourself, it's going to work out. It's, exactly. Because no, nobody else does. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Like when you're first starting out, Everybody wants to tell you you're probably not going to make it, but then when you do, everybody you know wants you to to teach you, teach them how you did it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jake, your business is a nationwide uh, business, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, how can people find you if they would like to reach out and connect with you? Um, our website, uh, CloptonCapital.com, um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Jake Clopton. I'm I'm incredibly easy to find. Okay. Okay. I'll put some links in the show notes anyway, but uh, Jake, it's been, it's been really uh, enjoyable conversation and uh, wish you the best. Likewise. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed the show or found it useful in any way at all, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or alternatively share it out on social media or to, with a friend who you think the podcast could help.
If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via my Facebook group, Behind the Facade Community. And the long-time listeners will be aware that I have a YouTube channel called Gavin J. Gallagher, where I have recently begun posting these episodes. These actual podcast episodes are up there to watch. And shorter videos, videos from the construction site that we have at the moment, and various other kind of bits of advice and stuff that I put up there. So go and check it out. If you're not a fan of YouTube, you can stay in touch with the various projects I am working on by joining my tribe over at GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, you'll be able to check out the online learning and education stuff that I have on the real estate business, including my mastermind. That's all for now, guys. I'll see you back here next week. Mm -hmm.